the basis of all Indian philosophy is called the self. And this word in Sanskrit is Atman, and that means self in the vastest possible sense and the most inclusive sense of the word. It means yourself, and it means also self as such, existence as such, the totality of all being. And of course, this is something that one cannot talk about in the sense of talking about it logically. You can talk about it. A poet can talk about anything, and the Upanishads are very largely poetry. Of course, everything in the world, knives and forks, tables and chairs, trees and stones, are indescribable. Korzybski referred to the physical world as the unspeakable world really rather a funny name because it has two edges. It's of course something you can't say anything about, that is to say it is ineffable, but it's unspeakable also in the sense that the word meaning something taboo. We shall see as we go on wherein that taboo consists. From the standpoint of logic, we can't say anything about everything because in order to say something about something, and state it logically, you have to be able to put it in a class. Now classes are intellectual boxes. When you play games like animal, vegetable and mineral, you've got there three boxes. And when you come to think of it, you don't know what any two of those boxes are really, uh, without the third, or especially you don't know any one without another. Because in order to have a box, there must be what's inside the box and what's outside the box. And then by this method of contrast we can make a logical discussion about things. All words, therefore, are labels on intellectual pigeonholes. But then, when you come to something which is completely all-inclusive, when you come to the which than which there is no witcher, to what fundamentally is then you're without a box, and you can't talk logically. Of course, you can distinguish is from is not, but only in a very limited way, as I can say, I have a pen in my left hand, I do not have a pen in my right hand. And by this, and from this, we abstract the idea of to be and not to be, is and isn't. But when we consider being with a capital B, this includes not only such is's as celestial bodies, but also such isn'ts as the space that encompasses them. And these two go together, as we shall see in more detail as the time goes on. But now a perfectly logical person would therefore say that the notion of the self, the Atman, as the fundamental reality in which everything else exists is meaningless. And, of course, from a logical point of view, it is. We won't deny that to those critics who call themselves logical positivists. But at the same time, just because something cannot be put into a logical category does not indicate that it isn't real. 
The self, you see, bears somewhat the same relationship to the world. As the diaphragm of the speaker in this radio bears to the music you've just been hearing. None of the music was about the diaphragm. And nobody said anything about there being a diaphragm. The diaphragm as such didn't come into the picture, and yet it was everything in the picture. All those different noises were vibrations of this thin film of metal. So also with your eardrum, so also with the apparatus of your eyes. Your eyes, you see, have no recognizable color. I mean, you may have brown eyes or blue eyes or green eyes, but the actual lens of the eye is what we call colorless. Of course, it might have a color, only because we are seeing that color all the time, we don't notice it. Just as if you wear sunglasses, after a while you cease to notice that you've got them on. The green of the sunglass, you see, becomes the colorless color. So one might ask then, just as you say, well, what is it on? What is the music on? Is it on tape? Is it on a speaker? Is it on a drum? Whatever the variations may be, we can ask the question, what are you all on? What is all this on? And the Hindus answer, it's on the self. Like we say, this one's on me. <laughs> it isn't that uh, there's only one self in the sense that is taught in a philosophy called solipsism. Solipsism is the idea that you are the only person who exists and everybody else is your dream. Nobody can prove that this isn't so. Except I'd like to see a congress of solipsists arguing as to which one of them is really there. It isn't that, it's more complex than that. It's saying that the self in each one of you is really at root one. Just in the same way that you have all over your body millions of nerve ends. Each one of those nerve ends is, as it were, a little eye. Because all the senses are fundamentally one sense. They are various forms of touch. And the most delicate of the forms of touch is, of course, the human eye. Then the ear, and so on down the list of the senses. Now imagine then every little nerve end is a little eye. And it gets its impression of the world, but it sends it all back into the central brain. Well, in a somewhat similar way, every person, every animal, every what the Hindus call sentient being, and even rocks are regarded as sentient beings in a very, very primitive form. Because when uh, you, say, take a piece of wood, which is supposed to be dead, or let's just take a real rock, and I go, that is the rock's response. And uh, that indicates the, the, the rock's vibration, and that is a very, very primitive form of consciousness. The rock goes jangle all the way through and produces this noise. And that's its consciousness, right down to the lowest. So all those forms that we see may be looked upon as the eyes that look out of one central self. Only, of course, 
in the body, in the human body, we can see the connections between the nerve ends and the brain. It's much more difficult to see the connection between one individual and another. If they're married, that's a little bit closer. But just all us human beings rattling around, we're not even rooted to the ground like trees. And therefore it's very easy for us to form the impression that I am only what is inside my bag of skin. And that I, my ego, myself, is a different self from yourself. And we're all, therefore, fundamentally disconnected. Now that, of course, is a superstition. It is an idea brought into us by our upbringing and by our various cultures. Because actually, from a perfectly physical point of view, not talking anything about metaphysics, no person exists alone. Or as the poet Dunn put it, no man is an island. You exist, each one of you, strictly courtesy of your parents. And we need, in order to live the cooperation of the community, of the society, not only of people, but also of plants, many kinds of animals, insects, bacteria, air, temperature, cosmic rays, every kind of thing that is around us is as essential to our being as our heads. You can draw little gradations of some things that are more essential and some things that are less essential. But fundamentally, everything is necessary for your existence. And so your apparent disconnection, the fact that you are not tied to other people with umbilical cords or some kind of uh, wiring that gives you one mind, Nevertheless, we do have one mind, in the sense that, uh, for example, all of us turn out to be approximately the same shape. Two eyes, two nostrils, a mouth, two hands, two legs, and so on. A haiku poem, a uh, Japanese haiku, says a hundred gourds from the mind of one vine. And so it is with people. So it is with everything in the world. That's just from a purely physical point of view. But going yet deeper, we find that it's somehow a necessity of thought that there be some sort of a something which is the common ground of all these universes, all these galaxies. And that ground is the self, as Hindus understand it. Now that's quite a startling point of view. Because what it's saying is, you see, that you are basically the works. Now, the Hindus do say that the self the great self is consciousness but of course that does not mean consciousness 
in the sense of our ordinary everyday consciousness. Ordinary everyday consciousness is indeed a form of this kind of consciousness, shall we say a manifestation of it. But naturally, you see, you have going on all the time two types of consciousness. Number one, the things you notice. And you notice things by having words or other symbols which you attach to them. It's very difficult to notice a thing for which you don't have a name and which you can't classify by some sort of image or shape. There are peoples, of course, who notice things that we don't notice. Eskimos have five different words for snow because snow is very important to them. To us, it's all just plain snow. Hopis have words for dry space, which is a we don't have a we don't have one word for that. There are all kinds of variations in language according to what people notice. So there's noticing consciousness, which we have courtesy of notation. But then there's also consciousness which doesn't notice, but nevertheless is highly responsive. You are responding at the moment to all kinds of stimuli coming to your nerve ends, which you don't notice at all. The way you are sitting is a response to unconscious stimuli. The way you adjust yourself and move, the way your heart beats, the way you breathe, the way you grow your hair, the way you color your eyes, the way you see, you don't know how you do that. You're doing it, but you don't know how it's done. So you see, consciousness in the ordinary sense, that is say, conscious attention, doesn't notice everything. It only notices very little of the world. If I ask you, what did you do yesterday? You will give me a story that you will write out in words or say in words stretch that out in a long, thin line. And it will be a very, very attenuated and abstract form of what, in fact, you did yesterday. Because you did billions of things yesterday, but you remember only a very few of them, because you only noticed a very few. So, therefore, just in the same way that conscious attention is not aware of all the other operations of the body, so, in just that way, we are not aware of our connection, indeed our identity, with the fundamental self. We go to sleep at night, and then we wake up, and because the physical brain is still there, we remember everything that happened the day before. But if the physical brain decomposes, then we're what is called dead. And we say, well, that's the end of that. But when the leaves die and fall off the trees or the fruit drops, next year, more leaves, more fruit. So in the same way, when you and I die, more babies later. If the whole human race dies, you bet your life. There are all kinds of things that feel that they're human. 
scattered throughout the multiplicity of galaxies. Because this universe is a peopling universe, just as an apple tree apples. But because we are unconscious of the intervals, we are not aware of the self with our conscious attention when conscious attention isn't operating. But still, just as you don't notice what your pineal gland, say, is doing at the moment, so in the same way, you don't notice the connections which underlie, which tie us all together, not only here and now, but forever and ever and ever and ever. The difficulty and the basic reason why we don't notice the self is that the self doesn't need to look at itself. A knife doesn't need to cut itself. Fire doesn't need to burn itself. Water doesn't need to quench itself. And a light doesn't need to shine on itself. So, this is the fundamental problem of having some sort of awareness of the self. Nevertheless, it is the whole contention of Indian philosophy, especially what we call Vedanta, that it is possible in a certain way to become aware of oneself in this deepest sense, to know that you are the totality. And this experience is the real substance of Indian philosophy as a whole, both Hindu and Buddhist. It is called moksha, which roughly means liberation. Liberation from the hallucination that you are just poor little me. To wake up from that kind of hypnosis and discover that you are simply something, your organism, your physical body, your conscious attention, which is your ego, that you are something being done by this vast, indescribable self, which is out of time, which has no beginning, no end, neither continues nor discontinues. It's beyond all categorization whatsoever. And so the Upanishads say, all we can say of it positively is the negative. Neti neti, it is not this, it is not that. Anything therefore you can formulate, imagine, picture, will not be the self. So when you are trying to know the self, you have to get rid of every idea in your head. It doesn't mean, as some people seem to think, that you have to get rid of every sense impression. It isn't as if you had to go into a catatonic state of total absorption. Of course, that can be done, but the full moksha, the full liberation, is when you come back out of absorption, 
and see this everyday world. Just as it looks now, but see as clearly as clearly can be that it is all self. It is comparable to something like this. If you look at the moon, you might imagine at full moon that you were looking at a disc until somebody points out to you that it's a ball. Now, nothing in the way of a sense impression has changed, but your understanding of it has changed radically. Sunrise is not the same event for a person who thinks that the Earth is the center of the solar system as it is for a person who knows that the sun is the center of the solar system and that the Earth is turning. The senses see the same event, but there is a different interpretation. And so more is seen. Seeing is done much more with the mind than with the eye. We see what we are taught to see. We see in terms of our ideological structure, our culture, our conditioning. And so all that conditioning teaches us to see the world in its separateness. But you can be deconditioned from that and see just this same world that you're looking at now in its unity. There are a few hints that I can give right now as to how that happens. Only I shall go into this much more fully in the last session. You must understand, right to begin with, that when we talk of things, people, and houses, and waters, and mountains, that thinking about them that way emphasizes their difference. It stresses differentiation. But you see, you don't really know what differentiation is unless you know what sameness is. Just as you don't know what to be is unless you know the meaning of not to be. And the boundaries of things which outline them, we say, well, uh, I begin maybe up here, and above my head it's not me anymore. So this cranium thing, this skull with hair on top of it, divides me from space. <coughs> true if you want to look at it that way, but it's equally true that my cranium joins me to space. Imagine what would happen to me if there weren't any space around me my outline would thereupon disappear. Because you see, every, every boundary needs two sides, the inside and the outside. And you can't separate them. So boundaries are held in common. They join things as much as they divide them. Now, we, we are taught, you see, not to see that way. Our conscious attention is captured by figures within backgrounds and it tends to ignore backgrounds.
It is captured by things that move rather than things that are relatively still. And so when we see someone going up a hill, we say the man is going up the hill. We don't see also that the hill is coming down to the man. If you really know how to climb hills, you will feel the hill lifting you up as you climb. And that will make climbing much easier. Every pull is also a push, and every push is also a pull. When I put my hand out like that, it is correct to say that it is pulled out as that I push it out. You could see that easily in turning the steering wheel of a car. Are you pulling it or pushing it? Both. So, you can become aware of this tremendous interconnectedness. And that is one aspect, one fragment of what somebody who is moksha, who is liberated, sees. He sees, shall we say, that everything goes together. And that is, in a way, what we mean by relativity. Because relativity means relatedness. Just as fronts go with backs and tops with bottoms, insides with outsides, solids with spaces, so everything that there is goes together. And it makes no difference whether it lasts a long time or whether it lasts a short time. A galaxy goes together with all the universe just as much as a mosquito, which has a very short life. From the standpoint of the self, time is completely relative. You can have, if you scale it down, as much time between two of those very rapid drum beats as you can in eons and eons and eons. It's all a question of point of view. Or, to use a scientific expression, level of magnification. Change your magnification on your skin, take out a magnifying glass, and you don't see the familiar skin anymore. You see all the pores with hair sticking out of them. Change it again and get a microscope, and you see cellular structure. Get an ion microscope, and you see molecules. And we know by other methods of observation that it can get smaller and smaller and smaller and that the spaces between these minute units are so vast that uh, they're comparable to the distances between the sun and the planets in scale so also with time so in this sense there could be vast vast universes full of empires and battleships and palaces, and brothels, and restaurants, and orchestras in the tip of your fingernail. And on the other hand, we could be all going on in the tip of somebody else's fingernail. Now, as you know, the human senses respond only to a very small band 
of the known spectrum of vibrations. We know through instruments of quite a vast spectrum that we, as I say, with our senses, see only a little of it. If our senses were in some way altered, we would see a rather different looking world. We can do this, of course. We can put on special lenses uh, to enable us to see heat. And then we see all the heat radiations coming out of people. And uh, we say, well, I never noticed that about you before. But so in the same way, there are infinitely many possibilities of vibration and of organs sensitive to those vibrations so that there could be worlds within worlds within worlds, spaces within spaces, uh, just like the many, many wavelengths of radio and television going on forever and ever in all directions. Possibilities are infinite. But having senses and noticing is a selective process. It picks out only certain ones, just as when you play the piano. You don't take both arms and slam down all keys at once. You select. And so, perception is a kind of piano play. It is picking out certain things as significant, that is to say, as constituting patterns. And the whole universe seems to be a process of playing with different patterns. But whatever it does, whatever it plays, in whatever dimension, on whatever scale of time or space, it's all on the self. And the self uh, is also known uh, in Sanskrit as uh, Brahma. This is a neuter word. Brahman is from the root BRH which means to expand to grow it isn't quite clear exactly why this word was chosen sometimes there's a still better word for the self which I like is the word tat almost like tit for tat uh, tat. Tat means that. We get our word that from the Sanskrit tat. And so when the baby comes into being, first of all, the first thing it says is tat. Tat. Uh, the baby is pointing. Tat. 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 And it's saying that. Look, isn't that? Love. That. See? So that is the witch than which there is no witcher. And so you get the formula in this Brihadaranyaka uh, Upanishad. Tat Ram Asi. Which means Tat, that, Tuam, Latin, you know, uh, you, Asi, uh, you are that. That thou art. That art thou. So, in this sense then, Every self is modeled on and is an expression of the one self because you all feel individually that you're the center of the world and everything else is seen in circles 
circling out, spearing out from where you are. And that's, as it were, the called the microcosm, the little cosmos. But then in the same way, the macrocosm has a central self, although this is not central in the way we talk about centers in space. Do you see that? Uh, the center of a circle is in the middle of the circle, and the circumference is away from it. But you could say, you could use a phrase that the Christian theologians have used of God, that circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. You could speak of Brahman that way. It isn't in the middle of the universe, spatially speaking. You might ask the question, where is the universe? Ever thought of that one? Where is it? Well, you can't say where because all, everywhere has to be in relation to something. There would have to be another universe to say where this one is. But then since those two together would constitute the universe, uh, we wouldn't still be able to say where it was. It isn't anywhere. And so in that sense, the center isn't anywhere in space locally. And furthermore, the kind of space we are dealing with is only one possible kind of space. It's the kind of space our physical organisms are attuned to. We are, you see, like the radio. We pick up what wavelength we're on. So then, when uh, inquirers used to come to that great modern Hindu saint, Sri Ramana Maharshi, and they'd ask him all sorts of silly questions, like, who was I in my last incarnation? What will I be in my next one? He would always reply, who is asking the question? Who are you? Find out. Because that's the thing you need to know. As it were, dig down into the depths of your being and say, what is this? That's one of the very fascinating questions. It's also, it teases us out of thought to think about death in the sense of going to sleep and never waking up. Imagine that. And you find you can't. And yet, it's, it's, a, it's a thought that although you can't get to grips with it, it remains fascinating. Also the question, how is it suddenly that you awakened into this world? Where were you before? In Zen Buddhism, they have the meditation problem, the koan. Before your father and mother conceived you, what is your original nature? And that's the same sort of weird question as what it would be like to go to sleep and never wake up. What was it like to wake up having not previously gone to sleep? It's very mysterious. But as you go on and plumb this question, you begin to develop the feeling that your existence is exceedingly odd. 
in many ways odd. Odd because it is here and it so easily might not have been. After all, if your father hadn't met your mother, would you be here? I struggled to make it on Wednesday. Now of course somebody would be here. Because he might have met somebody else. Would that be you? Of course it would. Don't you see? You can only be you by being someone. But every someone is you. Every someone is I. That's your name, you say. Uh, it's me. I am here. And everybody feels that I in the same way. It's the same feeling. Just like blue everywhere is the same color. So I-ness being, as it were, the most fundamental thing in man is also fundamental to the universe. It too is I. And our I is a special case of it. Coming out from the in quotes, central eyes, like so many tits from the belly of a sow, or so many spines from a sea urchin, so many legs from a spider. And that is, of course, why the images of the Hindu gods are shown with many arms or many faces, because it is saying that all arms are the arms of the divinity. All faces are its masks. So, you see, there's really nothing to worry about. Because the, the important view is perfectly indestructible. It's what there is. Now, of course, a Hindu like Krishnamurti would say you must be very careful about beliefs like that because you may be using this idea of an eternal self, which is the real self in you, as an escape, as an expression of your fear of ceasing to be. And indeed, most beliefs are used in that way. People commonly say, I need a religion because I need something to hang on to. Now, if you need something to hang on to, you have not got religion. Because you've got the opposite of faith. Faith is not a state of hanging on to something. Faith is a state of letting go. So, you see, lots of people like to have a very definite idea of God. They want to be able to think of him as a benevolent old gentleman with a big beard, who's very kindly and loving. Or at least some sort of spirit of a high moral character, uh, depending on what you mean by morals. And so they believe that God is like that. But you see, the Hindus start by getting rid of beliefs. That, I said, to know the self, you must get every idea out of your head about what the self could be. That doesn't mean you cease to have ideas about how to cook bread. It means that you abandon all ideas of the self. Because that 
creates a transparent state of mind in which and through which the self can become manifest. So believing in it isn't the point. The point is knowing it. And either you know it or you don't. And when you do know it, there's no question of believing in it because you know it. But before you know it, it doesn't really help you to believe in it. That's too bad. So you mustn't believe anything I say about the self. Uh, I can, in every word, I express it, but in no word do I describe it. You see, that's the teeth can't bite themselves. Then. So, this is, of course, a comforting idea in a certain sense. That uh, our comings and goings, our fortunes and misfortunes are a sort of mirage. As indeed they are. The more we know about them, the more we know about the world, the more diaphanous it seems. The only reason I can't push my pen through the floor is the flaw is going so fast that the pen doesn't go through it. It's like a revolving electric fan. You have some difficulty putting your finger through, and if you persist, you can damage your finger. So in the same way, if you bang your head against a granite wall, you damage your head. But it's because the granite wall is going so fast. Only it's going so fast in a very small area. All those molecules are running around to beat the fan. That's why it's so strong. In sloppier things like air, it's not so fast. And so you can get through. Because you're going faster than the air. So it but it's all something going. And if I do that fast enough, I go from. I'm still vibrating. Only. You don't hear the intervals. If I do it slowly, you hear the spaces between. Make it fast enough, and the ear is trained to notice the crests of the waves of sound rather than the trough. But it's still vibrating. Everything's vibrating. And therefore, everything in the world has the characteristics of smoke. You know, when you blow a cigarette or pipe or something and a cloud of smoke and you see it in the sunbeam and it's full of walls and designs and all kinds of marvelous things going on and then slowly it disappears. Well, everything's just like that. So if you say, you know, there are two attitudes you can take to that state of affairs. You can say sour grapes. It's all a lousy, wretched trap. And I... Here I am, I'm given all these feelings of love and attachment and joy of life, and then I fall apart. My teeth drop out, my eyes become feeble. I get cancer or cirrhosis of the liver or something, and then it all falls apart, and it's too bad. Therefore, therefore, don't become attached to things. Don't enjoy life. Treat it 
holding it off like that, just like a very, very firm uh, person who's been jilted and says, never again will I get mixed up with the opposite sex, or with love, because love hurts. But on the other hand, uh, a weaving of smoke can be very beautiful, provided you don't lean on it. Provided you don't try to preserve it, catch hold of it, <coughs> then you destroy it. So exactly the same way, there's nothing in the way of form that you can lean on, that you can grasp. And if you see that, then the world of form is very beautiful. If you let it go, to love people, you see, if you're a husband and wife, you, you must let each other go. Otherwise, the marriage is either going to break up or it's going to be hell. Uh, you, if, you, if you love a person, you say to that person, look, I love you, whatever that may be. I've seen quite a bit of it, and I know there's lots that I haven't seen, but still it's you, and I want you to be what you want to be. And I won't be happy if I've got you in a cage. You'd be a bird without song. So no cages around here, no balls of chains. Uh, then you see, uh, they, they love each other, and they're likely to go on loving each other. But if they wrap each other up with all sorts of ties and chains and documents and things, then uh, they're not on a very safe basis. The very firm words of those documents belie the situation, because nobody curses and swears. Bible and all sorts of things like that if he means yes. If there's some doubt that he means yes, then he's asked to do rituals and cursing and swearing and signing on dotted lines. Indicates doubt right at once. They just fly in the argument from the beginning. So when the Hindu and Buddhist philosophers speak of detachment from all this apparent world of separate beings, some of them take a rather um, grim attitude about it, as if they have been jilted. But the real meaning is not to, it's not a put-down word to say that the world is a nasty thing. It's saying, really, that detachment means going with this whole thing and not resisting its change. That doesn't mean, of course, that you become totally flabby. Because you wouldn't notice what change is unless there were certain interruptions in it. In other words, if a flower grew too fast, popped like that, uh, you know, we'd hardly notice it. It grows slowly. Because there are all sorts of little tensions in it holding back. Just when you grow, you know, uh, or when a tree grows, the bark, contains the tree and holds it in and offers a little resistance, you see, but it expands in time too. So there's always going out and holding back in change. So to go with that though, and you can afford to go with it, you can afford to get mixed up in life and to fall in love and to get involved with all sorts of things. You could afford it if you know that it's an illusion. But this is not illusion in a bad sense of the word. Here's this Hindu word, crucial, 
The world is called Maya. From the root, Mat. This word, Maya, yes, it means illusion. It means magic. It means art. It means delineation or measurement. So from matra we get meter. We also get matter, material. Isn't it funny that when we say material, today we mean something very real. Because the root of the word is illusion. <laughs> so you see, I mean measurement is kind of an illusion. You don't find inches lying around. You can't pick up an inch. <laughs> and you can't uh, do anything with an hour. You know, it has to be an hour of something. It has to be an inch of something. So, in, in the same way that hours and inches and pounds and uh, dollars and so on are actually imaginary. <coughs> They're uh, elaborate systems of cosmic bookkeeping with their little scratches on paper, little hairlines on dials. So, in exactly that way, the distinction between things is maya, is imaginary. But what an imagination! See? So, uh, in a way, to say that the world is maya is at the same time to say that what lies behind Maya is immaterial. Look at the reversal of the word. Oh, it's immaterial. It doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is all this. But now, that gets us to a deeper point yet. Uh, the, the self, the real self, doesn't matter. Which is another way of saying, it doesn't exist for any purpose. It doesn't need to exist for any purpose. What purpose would it exist for? When it's what there is. It doesn't need, it won't find anything in the future. Has nothing in the past that it has to go back and remember. It's now, an eternal now. And so in that way, it doesn't matter. But therefore, the most important thing in the universe is the one thing that doesn't matter. The one thing that's totally and completely useless and that nobody can find anything for. Once a Zen master was asked, what is the most valuable thing in the world? And he answered, the head of a dead cat. Why? Because no one can put a price on it. So this self, the Brahman, is like the head of a dead cat. But you see, if then you say, hmm, I uh, really ought to, to, to get that dead, hat, dead cat's head because um, something spiritual about it and uh, it'd be very good for me. 
After all, if I, if I knew the self, I might be a better person. People might like me more. I'd be more constructive in society. I would uh, do this, that, and the other. You see, that's putting the cart before the horse. That's trying to make the tail wag the dog. The knowledge of Brahman, the self, never does anybody any good if they're trying to make it do them some good. Only when they're not concerned with whether it does them any good or not, does it do them any good. It's like when you relax and you go out and play. Americans in particular don't know how to do this because they're always justified. They always say it's good for me. It's exercise. It's to change from work and that'll be able to make me work better. Everything they do is done for some serious reason. The Protestant conscience. And so we never play. It's a very exceptional. Because play is that which is done just for itself. For fun. So the self, the Atman, the Brahman, exists for fun. There's no reason. And uh, it is therefore Maya is linked with the word Lila. Lila. And that means play. Also, of course, the word illusion in English is derived from the Latin ludere, play. So the nature, you might say, of the self is that it does no work. It only plays. Work is something serious, you know, that you do for a purpose because you believe that you've got to go on living. You work to survive because you think you have to survive. That was one of the things they told you as a little child. You've got to go on, man. But you don't have to. <laughs> this thing doesn't have to go on. That's why it does. I know that sounds paradoxical, but uh, there's so many things in life that are like that. If I'm trying to impress people, I usually don't. If uh, you try too hard with anything, you usually make a mess of it. You have to play it, like when you're fishing. You get a sort of fish on the line. You've got to drag it out of the water. You have to play that fish, you know. And so, this basic thing then is that the self, the Brahman behind the world, is engaged in play. This, it is in this sense that the Hindu philosophers say, Brahman does not actually become the world. The meaning of that is he's playing a being, or it's playing a being, as distinct from working at it. And so, in certain Oriental countries, uh, when one refers to noble people of high birth, it is often said, uh, so, so, Lord, so-and-so has died. 
See, the idea of one is an opposite. The opposite of one is many, or none. But the which than which there is no which has no opposite. There's nothing outside it. So you can't call it one. Because one is an exclusive idea. It excludes two. So they call it instead of one, they call it non-dual, which is advaita. This is from the word you see, deva is the root meaning two. It's in our, the, the, the V becomes U, so we get dual. And A is the meaning in Sanskrit often non. Non-dual, Advaita. And so, it is, it, it doesn't exclude anything. One is an exclusive word. Advaita is meant to be a totally inclusive kind of unity. Now, of course, this word itself, when you look at it from a logical standpoint, is a dualistic word, just like one. It's the opposite of Dvaita, Dvaita and Advaita. But the idea here in Indian philosophy is to use this word in a certain way. Now, you know that on a flat surface, you can't draw three dimensions. Anything you draw will be in two dimensions. But when uh, we do this, uh, we're in two dimensions. Now, if I want to put that in three dimensions, all I have to do is this. And you see a telephone pole on a road. Why? Why do we see three dimensions? Because of an artistic convention called one-pointed perspective, which will give you the illusion of a third dimension. Now, in other words, a two-dimensional line is being used to imply a third dimension which can never be expressed on a flat surface. So in exactly the same way, Advaita is a word used specially to designate what lies beyond all logical categories. <coughs> Perhaps the simplest way in which one can express Advaita is this. Take a piece of paper and it clearly has two different sides. Only by the elaborate joke of the Möbius strip in mathematical topology can you make a one-sided piece of paper. But in all ordinary cases, a piece of paper has two quite different sides. But these two different sides are inseparable. 
don't have one without the other. There is therefore, shall we say, a secret conspiracy between the two sides of a piece of paper, always to be found together. Uh, only, what is this? You see, when you get your boxes, every inside has an outside, and they go together. It's that going together that is non-duality. It expresses itself as duality, but all dualities that we know go together. And that is the non-duality that is the secret link between them. This morning, I discussed the idea of the self as the basis of the universe and showed that this idea, which is fundamental to the central tradition of Hindu philosophy, is not a logical idea. You could call it paralogical, metalogical, or something like that. Because logically, we can discuss only what can be classified. And in logic, only that which can be classified has meaning. Buddhist philosophy speaks of the four unknowns, water to the fish, air to the bird, enlightenment to the ignorant, and the mind to man. Because what we are embedded in, what, as I said, we are on in the sense that something is on the radio, or on tape, or on like a color transparency, is on film. What we are on is in everything, like salt in the sea, uh, and therefore, since it's in everything and in all directions, it never becomes an object. But that doesn't mean to say that there isn't some form of knowledge in which, shall we say, its presence is apprehended rather than comprehended. So for Hinduism, especially for its central philosophy called Vedanta, the Anta or summation, the end of the Veda, the, the Veda being the traditional scriptures of Hinduism, dating from perhaps about 2000 BC. According to the Vedanta, realization of the self is the goal of life, Moksha, liberation, is when you know for sure that yourself is a special case of the self. That just as you are unaware of all your organic processes, just as the beam of a headlight doesn't shine on the wire, gives the power the battery that shines out in front. So in the same way one is ordinarily ignorant, or shall I say ignorant, of the root of one's own self as being the central self of all. Then I went on to discuss the production of a seemingly divided and universe of separate things out of the self, as Leela, a form of play. And this afternoon I want to develop that idea further.
word play and the word game have many levels of meaning. We are accustomed to use the word play in opposition to work and to regard play as trivial and work as serious. Play is important, it has a place in life, because all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. But very largely, a game or a play is something associated in our minds with triviality. You're only playing with me, says a girl to a suitor. You're not serious. How serious do you have to be? When does one get serious in a flirtation? When do we say this is getting serious? When you're holding hands, playing footsies under the table, kissing, petting, sleeping together, married and babies. Maybe that's serious. <laughs> But, uh, We also use the word play in a non-trivial sense. I won't say in a serious sense. Because if somebody says to you, I love you, you turn around and say, are you serious? That's the wrong question. What you should ask is, are you sincere? Do you really want to be loved seriously? We say very often, I went to a play. What did you go to? Oh, it was Hamlet, a tragedy. But it was still a play. I went to hear Heifetz playing the violin. Was that a trivial matter? On the contrary. The very highest kind of art form. Still play. And you pay entertainment tax by your ticket. I say too, when I do philosophy, like I'm doing with you, this is entertainment. But in the sense, I hope that you're listening to someone play a musical traffic. I'm not being serious, but I am being sincere. Uh, the difference, you see, between seriousness and sincerity is that seriousness is someone speaking in the context of the possibility of tragedy. that there is a situation where things might go absolutely wrong. And then I put on the expression which is serious. That's why soldiers on parade are always serious. They don't laugh. And when they salute the flag, they put on a stern expression. That's why in courts of law and in churches, people don't normally laugh because all that we deal with here is very important matter of life and death. But the fundamental question must be brought forth, is God serious? And obviously the answer is no, because there's nothing to be serious about. I said also that the self, as conceived, the supreme self, was quite useless, that it was immaterial, it doesn't matter. And. Uh, Because it transcends all values of what is better or worse, 
what is upwards or downwards, what is good and bad, it so weaves the world that the good and the bad play together like the black and white pieces in the game of chess. If you could imagine, for example, the radiance of God shining out and you find that the whole radiance is composed of tiny little men kneeling and making a worshipping attitude to the center. See? Huge star of these adoring figures then you suddenly notice that between the adoring figures, one for one, there's a figure, a dark figure, turned away, facing the other direction, looking out, not caring about the source at all. And those two together constitute the wave vibration, the crest and the trough that we call light. Yo, check it out. So, check it out. Check it out. play is deeply the sort of thing children like to do with deep absorption and fascination to drop pebbles into the water and watch the concentric circles of waves or mathematicians mathematicians you know uh, especially what we call higher mathematicians are entirely lacking in seriousness. They couldn't give a hoot in hell as to whether what they're doing has any practical application. They are working entirely on interesting problems and working out what they call elegant and beautiful solutions to these problems. And they can go on and on like that in absorbed meditation, spend their whole lives doing it. Or consider the musician practicing, working out interpretations. What is he doing? He's making series of interesting noises on instruments. Remember those drummers this morning, the patterns they were weaving. They're immensely complicated. If you sit down and count how those Hindu drummers are working, you will find there is no monotony in it at all. They have uh, rhythms 18 or 20 beats long, and they'll uh, very hard to bar according to our and they'll weave in, uh, someone will set one rhythm going, and then the next drummer will weave in and out of that rhythm. And they'll make non-hits count as hits. They'll do all sorts of things like this. And they get completely absorbed. Fascinating. Now what do people like to do when they don't have to do anything? Well, as far as I can make out, as you look all over the world, they like to get together, and do something with them. They may dance, they may sing, they may even play games, because, say, in playing dice, there's a certain wonderful rhythm to shaking the cup, rolling the dice out on the table, or dealing cards. You know, all the things that people like to do and think about these rhythms. Or some people like to knit. And this is, this is a, a rhythmic thing. Others just like to breathe. There are all sorts of ways in which Are you looking for someone? Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which we love to do this. 
And we can get so absorbed in rhythm that there are certain kinds of rhythmic activity which we consider extremely important. Now you see, our very existence is a rhythm. Waking and sleeping, eating and moving. And that's all we're doing. And just consider what we do every day. What's it all about? Does it really mean anything? Does it go anywhere? It's just because we want to keep on doing this kind of a hoop it up. So you can get a certain vision of life where everything is seen to be a complex pattern. The human dance. Flower dance, the bee dance, the giraffe dance. And these are also comparable to various games. Poker, bridge, backgammon, chess, checkers, etc. Or to various musical forms. Sonata, fugue, partita, concerto, symphony, or whatever. And that's what this all is. It's jazz. You see? This is a big jazz as well. And what it's trying to do is to see how jazz up is How far out this play of rhythm go. Because that's what we all come down to. We're going this. In every conceivable way. So then, that is why you see the, the, the fundamental view that the world is in play. Now, let's examine the rules of this game. The basic form of the cosmic game, according to the Hindu view, is the game of hide and seek. Or you might call it the game of lost Or again, now you see it. In examining the nature of vibration, we find a very peculiar thing. If you represent vibration as a wave, you will notice that there is no such manifestation as path away. In other words, uh, above this line here, it divides, you see, crest from crop. We do not find in nature crests without crop or crops without crest. No sound is produced unless there is both. Both the beat, as it were, and the interval between. Now, this wave phenomenon is happening on ever so many scales. There is the very, very fast wave of light, the slower wave of sound. Then there are all sorts of other waves 
process. The beat of the heart, the rhythm of the breath, waking and sleeping, the, the peak of human life from birth to maturity and down again to death. And the slower the wave goes, the more difficult it is to see that the crest and the trough are inseparable. So that we become persuaded in the game of hide and seek that it is possible for the trough to go down and down and down forever and never rise again into a crest. Forgetting that trough implies crest just as crest implies trough. There is no such thing, you see, as pure sound. Sound is sound silence. Light is light darkness. Light is pulsation. And between every light pulse, there is a dark pulse. Only as I said this morning, it happens so quickly that we only notice the light. And so the Hindus conceive the world as constructed on this plan. So if they put it into mythological terms, and by myth I mean not something that is false, I use myth to mean an image, usually vivid and colorful in character, an image whereby men make sense out of life. So the Hindu image is that the self eternally plays a game of hide and seek with itself. That Hindus calculate time in Kalpa units. And the Kalpa is 4,320,000 years. And so they say that for a period of a Kalpa, the worlds are manifest, or any particular universe, not all universes, but let's say any particular galaxy or, order, or whatever it may be, world order of some kind. Don't take this too literally. Don't take these figures as being some sort of divine revelations to make the predictions of prophecy. They're symbolic figures. So, for one Kalpa, the world is manifested, and that period is called in Sanskrit a Manvantara. And during that time, the Brahman plays hide. And he hides, it hides in all of us, pretending that it's us. And then at the end of the Kalpa, there comes the period called Pralaya. And that also is a Kalpa long. And in that period, the Brahman, as it were, comes out of the act and returns to itself in peace. This is a very logical idea. What would you do God? Would it be interesting to be all the time in self-possession? Isn't the whole fun of things 
as every child knows, to go on adventure, to make believe, to create illusions, that is to say patterns. And so, for some ways of talking in Hindu thought, this world is the dream of the Godhead. The Godhead is, of course, represented as in a way two-faced. With one face, he dreams and is absorbed in the dream world. With the other face, he is liberated. In other words, what you have to understand correctly is that from the standpoint of the self, the supreme self, the Pralaya and the Manvantara are simultaneous. But put into mythological form for human consumption, they are represented as being in sequence, following each other. But they really happen at the same time. So that one doesn't realize union with the self after death, later than a certain time. All references to the hereafter should correctly be understood as the herein, as a domain deeper than egocentric consciousness. That is to say, when you get down to the bottom of the egocentric consciousness, you get to its limit, which is figuratively its death. Then you go on inwards to what is super-ego. I don't mean in the Freudian sense of super-ego. Supra-ego. The self deeper than the conscious attention and in that way you go inwards to eternity you don't go onwards to eternity to go onwards is to find only time 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 more time more time in which things go round and round and round forever but to go in is to go to eternity but in the ordinary way when we're talking about this graphically and vividly imagistic terms, we can talk about the everlasting game which the self plays with itself. It forgets who it is and then creeps up behind itself and says, boom! And that's a great thrill. It pretends that things are getting serious, just as a great actor on the stage. Although the audience know that what they're seeing is only a play, the skill of the actor is to take the audience in have them all sitting in anxiety on the edges of their seats, or to be weeping or laughing, or utterly involved in what they really know is only a play. So you would imagine that if there were a very great actor, with absolutely superb technique, he would take himself in. And he, you see, would feel that the play was real. But that's their idea of what we're doing here and now. We are all the Brahman acting our own parts, being human, playing the human game so beautifully that he is enchanted. You see what enchanted means? Under the influence of a chant, hypnotized, spellbound, fascinated, and that fascination is mine. Now then, this works on a little plan. Let us consider the breakdown of a single cow. 
It consists of four bugles. That means an epoch. Number one is called Krita, or sometimes Sankhya. These names are based on the Hindu game dice. There are four throws in their game, and Krita means the perfect throw, the throw of four. Number two is Treta, throw of three. Number three is Vapara, throw of two. And number four is Kali, that's the worst throw a value one. Now you will see that, that these yugas divide up a period of 4,320,000 years. I never remember numbers too well. So the first yuga is 1,780,000 years long. The second is 1,296,000 years. The third, the Dvapara, is 864,000. And the uh, Kali Yuga is 432,000. Now you see what's happening. What, 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 when, when the manifestation starts, it's as good as possible. Everything is just glorious. Because you know well that if you were dreaming anything you wanted to dream, you would start out by having the most luscious dreams in that. Now when we get, you see, to the Treta Yuga, something is a little bit wrong. Krita is four square. Everything's perfect, like the symbol of the square is an ancient symbol. Treta is the triangle. Something's missing. There's a little bit of un uncertainty and danger now. By the time we get to Dvapara, the forces of light and darkness are equal. Duality. Pair. But when we get to Kali, the force of darkness overcomes. But now you see what happens is, if you take one-third of the Treta Yuga as being on the bad side. Half of the Dvapara Yuga being on the bad side. And all of the Kali Yuga, and you add those figures up, you'll get the bad side occupying only one-third of the total time. So what's going on here? It is not quite a situation, see, it's not a view of the cosmos in which good and evil are so evenly balanced that nothing happens. Evil is just troublesome enough to give good a run for its money. It's as the game that is being played here is playing order against chaos. But you've got to have some chaos 
in order to play the game of order against it. But if chaos, if order wins, there's no further game. If chaos wins, there's no further game. If they're equally balanced, it's a stalemate. So what happens is this. Order is, chaos is always losing, but is never defeated. It's the good loser. <laughs> and that is a game that is worth the count. Let's take playing chess. If you get an opponent who can always defeat you, you start playing. If you get a, an opponent whom you can always defeat, you stop playing. But so long as there is a certain uncertainty about one, and you win some of the time, then it's a good game. And this is simply a, sim a, a number symbolism, as I said again, not to be taken literally of the way this thing works. So the mythology says that we are now in the Kali Yuga, which started a little before 3000 BC. So we've got a long way to go to the end of it. To take but of course, people have a way of always being in the Kali Yuga. Uh, we can go back to Egyptian inscriptions from 6000 BC, which say that the world is going hopelessly to the dark. Uh, that's always been a complaint. But according to this mythology, there are, the, the you have to realize the, the Lord, the Brahman, in three aspects. One is Brahma, the creative principle. Two is Vishnu, the preserving principle. And three is Shiva, and Shiva is very important here. Shiva is always represented in Hindu imagery as a yogi. He is the destroyer in the sense of being the liberator, the cracker of shells so the chickens can come forth, the breaker up of mothers so that their children can be unsmothered. The, uh, the liberative force, the liberative destruction, uh, the bonfire. That's why devotees of Shiva like to do their meditations along the banks of the Ganges where they burn dead bodies. Because through destruction, life is constantly renewed. Shiva has a paramour, and her name is Kali. But that is a different word than this Kali. And Kali is much worse than Shiva. She is black, and she has a long, long tongue, and her eye teeth are like fangs. But she is very beautiful, otherwise. She's a lovely figure, but she's black. And in one hand, her right hand, she carries a scimitar. And in her left, she carries a severed head hanging by the hair. And Kali, who is Shiva's, you see, Shiva is normally 
considered wedded. All the gods have their uh, paramours. And they're all examples of the one central self. She's called Parvati, but her, that's her bright aspect. But her dark aspect is Kali. And Kali is the awful awfuls, the thing above all that men most dread. Kali is outer darkness. Kali is the end. She may be represented as a blood-sucking octopus, as a spider mother that eats its spouse. And uh, Kali is the principle of total night. And yet there are those in India like Sri Ramakrishna for whom Kali is the supreme mother. Because she is two-faced, she is playful and terrifying, loving and devouring. Destroyer and savior. And the cult of Kali has its, has its importance. Helping one to see the light principle in the very depths of darkness. I have some suggestions for meditation on Kali. You can all practice very easily. You go to the aquarium and you find out there the monsters of the deep that make you feel most uncomfortable. And you study. I have a friend who lives in Big Sur. When she moved there, she found the house was full of black widow's fires. And you know, every time you put your shoe on, you have to shake it first. Be sure there's not one of these things inside. And she couldn't stand it. She didn't know what to do. So she decided that what she would do was this. She bought a book on spiders. And she read everything about black widows. Then she looked very carefully at photographs of them. And after that, she wrote to a biological supply house and got some actual black widows encased in plastic and she studied them in detail. Finally, she captured in a glass jar a live one and watched it intently. And then since she knew all about them, she overcame her fear. So in this way, Kali is studied by the devotees. What are the most creepy crawly things you can think of? What are the most horrible abysses? What corridors of madness did you get lost in? What are the most horrible things you can conceive of? And if you do or meditate on those, this will be like putting manure on the soil. And out of all this apparently morbid and dismal uh, um, thinking, bright things will begin to arise. Because you will realize that what Kali is, is the most far out act that the Supreme Self can put on. The symbol of complete alienation from itself. Now you know how things are when you discover things that are very strange and unaccountable. How you get goose flesh, 
how sometimes if you become aware of processes in your own body you're not familiar with, they give you the heebie-peebies. How uh, unknown fungus, or for some people snakes, some people cats, some people spiders. We all have the things that seem most foreign and alien to us. Now, of course, we're thinking about the weird biological forms we might find on other planets. And uh, the creepy forms. Now, of course, you must realize that every monster looks at us, and we look like monsters to it. Uh, every creature in the world sees itself as a human being. Really, I mean, it, it's it's what's natural, and we uh, are so accustomed to our particular shape that we consider that normal. But of course, to, to fish, we are the most ghastly predators. Birds avoid us uh, unless they're specially tamed, and uh, the animal world just doesn't like us at all. We don't smell right. Nothing is good about us. But they feel natural and normal and human. So, what happens, you see, is this. In the process of the game of hide and seek, the Supreme Self tries to see how far out it can get. Just like children like to sit around and have a competition as to who can make the most hideous face. And so, this gets worse and worse as the time cycle goes on. Until at the end of the Kali Yuga, Shiva puts in an appearance and he's all black and he has ten arms. And he dances a dance called the Tandava. And in dancing the Tandava, the whole universe is destroyed in fire. But of course, as Shiva, having done this wreckage, turns around to leave the stage, find that on the back of his head is the face of Brahma, the creator. And it starts again. Well now, you see, this involves certain ideas that are quite alien to the West. One, the idea of the world as play. Our Lord God in the West tends to be over-serious. He sometimes laughs people to scorn. But there is very, very few records except in the Jewish, uh, what they call Midrash. Uh, you should read a book called um, The Legends of the Jews by Ginsberg. This is a very lovely book about all uh, the strange tales left out of the Bible, about all the great characters in the Bible. And in the Midrash, uh, the Lord God really has humor. And he cheats, uh, too. He does very funny things. But so far as most, uh, well, Islamic literature outside the Sufi tradition, and a great deal of Christian. There is no thought that the Lord could be anything but serious. Give me up
and no no Christian as a great Christian artist has ever painted a laughing class or a smiling Nothing that I've seen of any of the great masters. Always this figure is tragic and has that sort of look in the eye which says, one of these days you and I have got to get together for a very serious talk. <laughs> and too much of this becomes depressing by the children. They are forced to go to church and they hear those hymns about heaven that's consisting of endless Sabbaths. They find it exceedingly depressing. If not quite as painful as hell, certainly much more boring. <laughs> and the pictures don't help. Whereas, uh, so, so you see, there is some difficulty about the, the notion of the world as dramatic play for us. There's another difficult notion, and that is cyclic time. See, most of us live in linear time. This originated with St. Augustine and his interpretation of the Bible. Now, I don't know how true this really is, but it's certainly a big fashion in modern scholarship to say that it was Judaism that gave us the idea of history. Hindus have no interest in history whatsoever, or not until recent times. To the total exasperation of historians, there is no way of finding textual evidence of the age of most of the Hindu scriptures. Because they aren't interested in history as such, they are only interested in human events as archetypal occurrences, as repetitions of the great mythological themes over and over again. So if in a document started out that a certain adventure happened to King so-and-so, whom everybody knew at the time, in the next generation they had changed the name of that king to the current king, because the story was typical anyway. They just wanted to say a king everybody knew. They altered things in that way, and so they know no uh, kind of chronology. And if you ask uh, even quite intelligent Asians about this, they have difficulty in understanding what kind of a question you're asking. What is this history? Whereas on the other hand, according to our scholars, the Jews were historically minded because they remembered the story of their descent from Adam and Abraham, the great event of the liberation from Egypt, and then the uh, triumphant reign of King David. Then things go sliding downhill as other political forces become stronger and stronger. And so they get fixed on the idea that one day is going to be the day of the Lord, and the Messiah will come and put an end to history. And there will be 
restoration of paradise. But this is linear. They don't think of the world having been created many, many times before and come to an end many, many times before. It's one clear ascent from start to finish, from Alpha to Omega. Well, when St. Augustine was thinking about this, he thought, if time is cyclic, Jesus would have to be crucified for the salvation of the world once in every cycle. But for some reason, he had it firmly fixed into his head that there was only one historical crucifixion in time. What they call the one full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Once is enough. Now, of course, he got his, his, his hierarchies confused. It's true there is one sacrifice. But that's on the plane of eternity. On the plane of time, eternal things can be repeated again and again and again. But so, as a result of that, we are handed down, not a Greek, the Greeks also had cyclic time, like the Hindus. But we have been handed down linear time. Therefore, we are always thinking of a progression that will take us steadily, 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 faster and faster to a more and more perfect world. And it will get better, 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 all the way along, if we keep our heads. Now, this shows, I think, a rather naive view of human nature. It isn't, I would say, I would say, human beings tend to smash what they create say, let's do it again. There is that in man, which uh, is also in the child. Rub it out. What fun. You know, it's like a potlatch, like a massive destruction. If you, I forgive someone to give here, if you want to make money, and you're interested in this sort of operation, Get yourself on the edge of town, a lot where you can sell junk. But half your lot is a junk pile. The other half is a huge concrete, uh, thick concrete uh, area with a steel tower about uh, 300 feet high. And then around this with a protective wire fence, then you have bleachers all the way around outside that. And every day you advertise in the paper what you're going to drop off that tower. Grand pianos, a hundred typewriters, old cars, uh, everything like that. And people will come in swarms and will pay admission to watch the terrific destruction. Then you just, when the show is over, you take your bulldozer push all the rubbish over into the junkyard. See, that's a, it's a, it's a real show. People love Laurel and Hardy films, where they take a grand piano. 
with all that kind of slapstick busting up. So uh, that's uh, that's what we do. We make and we unmake. And uh, so uh, it isn't really too realistic to suppose that human beings will simply get better, 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 because they'll soon get tired of it. They say, let's be as awful as possible. See, there was that element in Nazism. How awful can you get? How brutal can you be? How, uh, how destructive? That, uh, it isn't just Germans who have that. At one time, people have their constructive aspect uppermost, but at other times they have their destructive after all, we are all can carnivorous. Uh, we are all here right now because of devouring cows, and sheep, and fish, and apples, and potatoes, and so on. All of them sentient beings. Do you realize how monstrous we are? Of course, we die. To do it is table manners and having it killed somewhere else. We try to pretend we are not doing that, so that when we get a steak served on the table, it doesn't remind us of a cow. We serve our food in various ways, so it doesn't look like eating these things. Packaging. Some people behind the scenes always do that dirty work. And people behind the scenes uh, take away the sewage. We, we are converting uh, all the living world around us into excrement and pretending it doesn't happen that way. And we are uh, the most marvelous vortices in this stream of food which whirls around as us and then disappears into ex excrements, which again fertilize the soil, and uh, uh, we keep on at it. So you see, there is that thing in us, which is represented by Shiva Kali. And it's always there. But at the same time, On the basis of this rather terrifying uh, mutual eating holocaust, all this gives off the most marvelous things, just like um, fish, which is supposed to be so unruly and cannibalistic and so on, have the most shining bodies, lovely creatures. The Hindu looks at the world with very, very Oh, hard-boiled realism. And sees terror and magnificence. Love and fury. Two faces of the same And you could say, well, is there any peace possible? 
after you've looked at this picture for a long, long time, and you've conceived the endless, endless cycles, because this thing goes on always and always and always. Per omnia secula secula, world without end. And the Hindu sometimes feels, Oh, Brahma, don't you ever get tired of it? No. Because Brahma doesn't have to remember anything. You only get tired of things you remember. That's why from the standpoint of Brahma, there's no time. Only an eternal now. So the secret of waking up from the drama, the endless cycles, is the realization that the only time that there is is the present. And this is called in Sanskrit uh, the point of time. Or another word used is Shana. This means moment. Bindu means atom. Not in the scientific sense of atom, but the word atom in Greek, the atomos, means what can't be cut. The smallest of the smallest. I've called it the eeny weeny. So they would say, now if you are realized and awake to the self, you know that you are the present. There is no other time than the present. And when you become awake to that, boredom is at an end. And you are delivered from the cycles. Not in the sense that they disappear, that you no longer go through them. You do go through them. But you know, you, you, you realize that they're not going anywhere. Now then, supposing you liken the rhythm of these cycles to music. How to listen to music with the maximum of enjoyment? Why surely, you don't hurry it up. You don't say, let's get to the end faster. You know how to listen to music only when you slow down time. That's why people like to jazz bands, like to smoke marijuana and listen to music because it slows time down. And you can hear every tiny little ripple of sound. And sit back and let that be. Well, yoga is the method of slowing down time by breathing. And so in the same way, you can see every little detail of life in a new way. So, oh my, look at that.
so uh, one's eyes are open in astonishment by being living totally here now. <laughs>